My name is Tom, and I'm an alcoholic. Alcoholism doesn't come from nothing. Like everything else, it comes from something. It comes out of a prepared ground. But the prepared ground is not always clear when the pot is boiling at its height. As the more afflictive degrees of this disease took hold of me, I think my own reactions to it became simplified. I think my chief reaction as it really began to grab me, I don't mean the student phase of it when one is leading up, but when it, when the bite begins to come on, I think my chief reaction was one of surprise. There were a lot of other reactions, but I was surprised that this was happening to me. And as it went on, I went from one surprise state to another. And my reaction became epitomized in a word which I kept asking myself at first and later I began to ask other people. I began to say, why? Why is this happening to me? It, re it really did see seem disproportionate. Uh, I never was like all alcoholics, and perhaps I should only say most, I was a terrific egotist. But I really never did start out to have this kind of trouble. I was just trying to get along in life. And when they began to lock me up, and then lock me up again, and when my family began to disintegrate, and my capacity to carry on a business began to disintegrate, and then when my body began to disintegrate, and when that thing that underlies the body, for which we don't have very much in the way of a name anymore that's current, perhaps the soul begins to disintegrate, I really would have liked to have somebody tell me why. How comes it that a person who is just trying to chug along in life gets into this? And one time when I was deep in it, not drunk, but between drunks, because toward the end I turned into a short-term periodic, although that was not my pattern in the beginning. And already, although I didn't recognize it, the grace of God had drawn me into contact with people who knew the answers. My problem was not to know the answer, it was to get a door open somewhere and accept the answer and understand the answer. I asked a very wise man in AA, I said, why? Why? And he said, my boy, you will never know why, while you're in it. If you ever blow clear, if you ever come out of it, and he said, I'm one of the few who still think that you may someday, then little by little you will know why. And it is so. The time came when I did blow clear, we never say that we're on firm ground. We all walk under a sword of Damocles in this thing. None of us ever feels that we have it made. But the time came when the power that is here in this room got to me and began to clear me up. And it did a thing, it did many things I never anticipated, but one of the things it did was it, it affected time in an odd way. I thought, if I ever get well again, I will feel better in the present. And after AA came to me, I did and do feel better in the present. As I went along from moment to moment, I began to come back to life. And this cast something forward into the future so that my scanning of the future. We're taught in AA not to scan the future quite as hard as we've been in the habit of doing, but sometimes when I would peek out of the 24-hour program long enough to see what it looked like a week or a month ahead, it began to look better. But it did a very odd thing. I wouldn't have believed it. It began to redeem my past. And when I would say, why after I had been in AA and had begun to learn how, which is the important question, 
a little here and a little there, I began to see why. It was as the fog rolling away or a smoke coming off a thing. Because the past is one's life. We're advised not to dwell in it. But on the other hand, it's nice with the eyes of courage, which comes to one here, to be able to see it. And I began to see a few of the reasons why. And I thought in starting I would just tell you what, in my case, some of the reasons why were for this alcoholic. Uh, I mentioned them because I suppose most of the whys are very different among us as to detail, but very similar in principle. To begin with, since I was a very small person, although I did not know it, comparing myself to others, I was a person desperately concerned to have my own way. This went back very early. And when I was crossed or thwarted in an important matter, I was perfectly capable of lying, cheating, and not only in words, putting on every kind of a phony act in order to get my way. I had a desperate drive to have my own way. And as we know, this is characteristic of the disease. Within the disease, this dreadful egotism that afflicts, I might almost say, all of us, underlying the thing that later takes the form of symptomatic drunkenness. This was clearly a thing with me from very early. And then when I was about 15 years old, I got rid of my religion. My life was ordinary in almost every way. I was not a neurotic child. I did not have a mean father or a doting mother. Things were about average at home. I was born in Nebraska. I was brought up on the west side of Chicago. My father was a boiler foreman for the Chicago and Northwestern Railroad. There was nothing outstanding one way or the other about my life. And I was brought up in a moderately religious home. Not too uh, unreligious. I was well trained in the faith to which most of us are heirs in the Western world. When I got to be about 14 or 15, I got to high school, and in surveying myself, it occurred to me that I was not outstanding in any way. I did get into athletics a little bit later, but I wasn't awful good at it, and I thought, dear, dear, I must be outstanding in some way, and then I got a good grade in general science in my freshman year, and I thought, ah, this is it, I will be a smart guy. I went in for being outstanding in a smart way, and as many of us know, this is a dreadful piece of baggage for a future alcoholic. There are two kinds of alcoholics, smart alcoholics and dumb alcoholics, and God help the smart alcoholics. <laughs> this was done in... I would almost say innocence on my part. I think it bordered on ignorance, though. I, there was a little culpability. I got awful smart. I got a rush of optimism to the wrong brain centers. I began thinking that this education was really doing things for me, and I began to apply this to my religion. Uh, in general science, if we wish to know whether air was a palpable substance, whether it had weight or not, we took a cylinder, and we weighed it, and we exhausted the air from it, and we weighed it again. And therefore, we proved that air is a palpable and massive and weighty substance, appearances to the contrary. And I began applying this new wisdom to the religion in which I was brought up, and I began asking myself about this guy that I had been trod abroad that walked around the hills of Galilee, and when he comes to the edge of the lake, he doesn't bother with a boat or with walking around. He just walks across. And I begin to ask myself, well, now this is a nice story and a fairy tale, but as a piece of evidence or thing to which a person would give credence, is it or ain't it? And I decided after about ten days serious thinking that it wasn't. And I also began questioning this story about the fishes in the loaves. You remember when the boys got hungry? Instead of sending them to town for provisions, he just pulled them out of the thin air. And I thought, is it or ain't it? And I thought, no, nah, couldn't be. And then I got 
This was really not original thought, as you know. There's a current of this kind of nonsense in the earth today, and it was running very strong then. I think perhaps it's not so strong now after two world wars. Anyhow, I went with this current, and I got rid of my religion, and I threw the baby out with the bath water. I got rid of all notions of religion. And I began to think that this was something that the human race was transcending, that the, those of us who were riding the crest of this new intelligentsia that was being coming ahead to master the world in the 20th century could do without this, and I began to do without it. I now see and know as a result of what happened in my life and in the lives of others who have shared their experience with me that a man who begins to run without faith is a guy who soon is running scared. But the running scared comes on slowly and the person covers up on the outside. And by the time I got to college, I was running scared, but I had become a very fancy soft shoe artist in the cover-up department. I became a very fancy man with a word. I could talk very fast. And I made a lot of the gestures that people make who are out to succeed in life. And I was building a cover-up over this hollow that I was carrying in my thorax, where faith normally resides. I, in what I would take to be a normal human being, I was working, I would not say successfully, but not unsuccessfully to cover it up. I was keeping even with it. I do think if perhaps I had just gone on and led a normal life, the ordinary blows would have struck that stupidity out of me, and I would have been a man who emerged into some kind of faith. <laughs> but about the time when that might have happened, lo and behold, I discovered the cure for fear. I went to the University of Illinois, a little in a little town not so far from here, because it's only a couple hundred miles, Champaign-Urbana, and the boys were drinking there. And by this time, I had a tremendous desire to be one of the boys I wished to identify. I felt uneasy as not one of the boys. And since the boys were drinking, I began to drink. We drank spiked beer in those days. Anyone here trained on spiked beer? <laughs> spiked beer for any young newcomers is made by pouring out some of the near beer, some of the contents from a bottle of near beer and pouring in some grain, you hope, alcohol. <laughs> and tipping it up while the nasty, greasy stuff wins its way up through the near beer, and then you drink that. So I sat in with the boys, and I drank like that, and I must say, it was kind of a shock the first few times, because I got very drunk, very fast, and very sick, and threw up. And after about the fourth of these sessions, I drew one of my fellow experimenters, one of my confederates that died, and I said... Look, I'm having a swell time at these gatherings, but do you mind telling me why are we doing this? <laughs> and he said, why don't you know? And I said, no, frankly, I don't. And he said, well, I've been watching you. You don't do it very well. He said, uh, he said you, you should take it easy. Little did I know under what circumstances many years later I would be advised to take it easy. He said, uh, in between, if you take it easy, in between the time when you start to drink and the time when you throw up, there is a short interval of pleasure. <laughs> and this is what we are pursuing. And so, somewhat enlightened... I begin to pursue pleasure in these terms. A girl that I was courting at that time went to the University of Michigan, so I transferred to the University of Michigan, still, you see, pursuing pleasure. <laughs> and the subject of drinking was better taught there. It was 1933. It was near the end of Prohibition. They were getting some pretty good booze across the river from Detroit. And instead of training on spiked beer, I began to train on 40-ounce quarts of Spay Royal. And I learned to take it easy, not too easy, and I learned that it indeed was fun. However, I made another discovery. I take it that fun is the reason that all normal people drink. 
Along with the fun, I discovered that it was doing something else for me. Ever since I had been a small child, I had been uneasy with people. This had gone on so long that I was very well adjusted to it. It was not a problem anymore. But I was more or less constantly uh, working at relating to people. People did not look as good to me as I knew they ought to. I did not like people spontaneously. I didn't dislike them too much, but I, they just didn't look good a good part of the time. And this was not good. Worse yet, I was dreadfully afraid with some evidence that I did not look as good to people as I would like to. Uh, shyness, I suppose, is the one word for it. And lo and behold, I discovered that when I had the proper amount of alcohol in me, this condition utterly evaporated. I was no longer shy. And that as the magic grew in me and spread out through my blood and into my psyche, and as the tensions were released, people began to look very good to me indeed. And with a little more drinking, I entered into the illusion that I look good to them. And this was very delightful indeed, and it became a motive for my drinking. Furthermore, I have mentioned to you that I was a fearful person. If someone had challenged me on it, then I would say, no, I'm a man who never experiences fear. But deep down, I was a very fearful person, already driven by many of the things that people are, who are fearful are driven by. I had an overweening and obsessive need to succeed, and the fear chewed at me pretty hard in many ways. I worried about many things. Whether I'd be thrown out of college later on when I had to earn a living, I worried about that. But now I discovered again, when I had just the right amount of alcohol in me, I was temporarily fearless, really, literally so. And these states of mind, way over and above and beyond pleasure, became important to me, and I began to drink for these reasons. There was one other reason. I wonder how many of us have this one. I sampled it, I tasted it for the first time one night when I was a junior at the University of Michigan. Everybody had gone off somewhere in the house, fraternity house. I don't know where they went. There was a lecture or something, or a pep rally or some darn thing. I stayed home. I had gotten a bottle of Bacardi rum from the bootlegger that afternoon, and I had the radio going, and it was a warm night in spring, and I sat there reading a novel by John Galsworthy, and I had a nice, shiny chromium shot glass, and I began to sip Bacardi rum. It's the first time I ever drank in that particular way, just keeping the inside of my mouth warm. And as I sat there and as I drank, very slowly, I didn't realize at first what was happening, I began to think, my God, I never have appreciated this man Goldsworthy. <laughs> what a terrific writer. And then I noticed the beat of the music, and I thought, gosh, it was a Mexican station. I thought, these people in Mexico are underestimated. Their music has really got it. And then I looked out and I saw the beauty of the light reflected on the wet pavement. And then the tears began to course down my cheek and I thought, my God, I'm drunk in a new way. <laughs> Drinking at times induced in me a state which William James has described as, I suppose, mild ecstasy when... All was really very well with the world. I must say that I was unable to reach just that crest very often, but I pursued it. And when I couldn't reach it, it was enough to be not shy and not fearful. For those reasons, I began to drink. Anyone who uses a drug in this way, it doesn't have to be alcohol. It may be morphine. It may be one of a number of other drugs is faced with a deadly drawback. In order to keep even with the game, not to get ahead of it, in order to keep even with the game, in order to get just equal results, the dose must be increased. And imperceptibly and involuntarily and unknowingly, or not very knowingly, the dose is increased. And in my case, it was increased. I got married, I got some responsibilities, we moved from Chicago to Detroit, I had a very nasty time there, I got fired for being took drunk at the wrong time. Great shock. I went over to, the, to Cleveland and got a better job. <laughs> this dreadful luck that pursues an alcoholic that supports the illusion that all is going well. 
I began to succeed because of this frantic, fear-driven desire, uh, uh, desire and need for success that underlay my lack of faith. And my need for alcohol, my need to be fearless, my need to kill the pain of normal existence became insistent. And by the time I got over to Cleveland, I needed about a pint a day of booze. Not so excessive, and of course I wasn't pulling it out of a pint bottle, I was drinking drinks. And I did very well in Cleveland. My wife became pregnant, which is a problem for a woman, I'm sure, but it's also a problem for the guy that's going to pay the bills, and the intake had to go up because this pain had to be killed. <laughs> and about this time, I got a great stroke of good luck, and I went down to New York in a very responsible job indeed, and I had my snout in the trough where the green stuff is, and I was highly stimulated. But I could not live a day without alcohol. I tried once. The, my problem, I never wished to be drunk. Please. I just wished to float. I wished to reach a state where life was beautiful and where I could work. Late at night when my time for sleep came, then even then I did not wish to be drunk. I wished to be oblivious quickly. I solved the problem of the morning drink about this time. I had read somewhere, you know, there are warning flags that go up with all of us. A guy doesn't live this way without the little voice of truth inside saying, Hey, Powers, this is a little rough, isn't it? And, <laughs> and you say, Why, of course not. I'm the racehorse type. I have to do these things. You keep lying to yourself. But there were a few bad signs flying. Again, I got took drunk down in New York one time, faced with a very responsible assignment, and I flubbed it. I didn't get fired, but I was horrified. I mean, this, this thing lay a thwart of my drive for success, and I thought, by God, something's got to go here. This booze is a real threat to me. I will knock it off. And I was living in Stamford, Connecticut at the time, and I called up my employers and I said, look, it's very sad, I have stomach ulcers. Do you mind if I stay home for a few days? I had heard there might be symptoms if you knock off a fairly heavy intake, and I didn't want to be caught with the symptoms on the job. And I tried to quit. And I walked up and down the beach in Stamford, Connecticut, all one day, and about four or five o'clock in the afternoon, it became very clear to me that I could not quit. I had to have the drink. It was not that I wanted a drink. I had to have it, the way a man has to have it whose face is tied in a knot and can't breathe. I had to have my booze. It was air to me and blood to me, and I suddenly knew it by daring to challenge it. God, what a shellacking I took. I snuck downtown and bought me a bottle and I snuck home and drank it and felt this stuff flowing out through me, not just thrilling me, feeding me. And I thought, this I have got to live with. I went back to work and I continued to drink, knowing that I was hooked. I drank for another year. My intake went up. Nothing spectacular. But I wound up drinking about a quart a day. Not at all to get drunk on. I got drunk weekends. This was living drinking. This was must drinking. Still, the facade is intact. This thing built by such discipline in a way. This appearance of normality. This guy who is going about his business and succeeding. And underneath this thing, this explosive thing is growing up and it has to be fed more and more and more. It won't settle for the same amount. Now I know it won't stop at a quarter day. At that time, I knew nothing of Alcoholics Anonymous. I knew, oh, I guess I had heard this. this was a disease. Oddly enough, it didn't occur to me that I had the disease. I thought I might be going crazy. I wasn't sure. I heard that an alcoholic was a person who drank in the morning. And I thought, oh, dear God, this must never happen to me because an alcoholic is a guy who has to stop drinking. And I couldn't envision life without drinking. I discovered how to beat the morning drinks. I discovered it, as a matter of fact, before I got to New York. 
One time when I was in Cleveland, I was used to having crashing hangovers. I expected to suffer in the morning. But one morning in Cleveland, I woke up and I stood in front of the mirror fixing my tie and whistling and jangling around there. And I felt wonderful. And I said, what, what is this? How very strange. And I went in the bathroom and looked at myself and came back still whistling. And my wife was still in bed. And I said, I... You know, I can't understand this. I feel fine this morning. What do you suppose it is? And she said, you damn fool, you're still drunk. <laughs> I had gone to bed with a very heavy package aboard and only slept about four hours, and I woke up feeling just dandy. I hadn't come out of the vacuum yet. Then I learned that if just before I went to bed, instead of taking three or four belts, I really poured a tumbler full and knocked that down, when I got up the next morning, I was in this embalmed state, and I didn't start to suffer till about 11, and then in my business, it's not considered bad form to take a few martinis and so I at noon, and so I only had an hour to suffer. Not too bad a price. By the time New York comes and all of this other business I've told you about comes, I am in a bind, but I don't know what to do about it. I just am driving ahead. And when it caught me, it, when the real business caught me, it caught me all of a sudden. I didn't go slowly from a, from a state where a guy is appearing to get along with it. I went right over the dam on July the 6th, 1940. Uh, a doctor told me that I went through, he said, you must stop drinking, and I did stop. And the next day, I went into convulsions, and I went right smack out of my mind. Doctors were called. I was given a number of hypodermics. There was a very profound state of unconsciousness induced, not drunken unconsciousness or sleep unconsciousness. Much later, I learned to do this to myself. This time, it was new to me. I went out, and I really went out. And when I came to... I was not at home in my own little trundle bed. I was in a strange little trundle bed. And there was a man sitting at the foot of the bed. And when I said, who are you? He said, I'm going to be with you for a while. <laughs> and then I looked up and saw the bars on the window. And I knew where I was. I was in the nut house. And I was not in the nut section, or not in the drying out section. I was in the nut section because... When they brought me in there, the wise men were perplexed. <laughs> they were not sure what this was. <laughs> and they, while they debated, I was put in what is politely called, euphemistically called, the disturbed ward. <laughs> the doctors were not sure whether or not this is an alcoholic who is behaving conspicuously nuttily or a nut who drinks. <laughs> well, I think in the next two weeks while I stayed in the disturbed ward and my companions day and night were an assortment of very gravely mentally ill people, schizophrenic, paranoiac, Manix, I don't know what kind of a yak I was, but I know I belonged there. I wept every hour on the hour. If anything was beautiful, beautiful was mentioned, I wept. If my wife or child was mentioned, this rush of uncontrollable guilt swept over me, and I couldn't control myself. But then at the end of two weeks, all of this passed away. And the alcoholic's worst enemy began to steal over me. Help! <laughs> Returning health. I was moved to Group 1. This was in the Hartford Retreat up in Hartford, Connecticut. Very high-bottom stuff, by the way. My company was paying the freight. The Hartford Retreat is a real elegant mental institution. <laughs> I must say, I finally got into nine of them, that they are all distressingly alike in the disturbed section in the flowing tubs and leather vests department. <laughs> but I was graduated at the end of two weeks into group one. Group one in the Hartford retreat is full of people who are puckering up to be normal again. 
and you still have a keeper in group one, but he goes along in caddies for you when you play golf. And I must say uh, that the horror of the whole thing began to mitigate considerably. They took us around in Cadillac cars and drove us down to the town for a swim every once in a while, and I got a lot of psychotherapy, which I was much too smart to benefit by, but I found it entertaining. And the health began to come on apace, and at the end of ten weeks, I'm ready to be discharged from this place. And as I left, they said, we still don't know what you are. You have, you have been in here officially with a label of manic depressive psychosis, but we do think you may be an alcoholic. And I said, just for reference, old dear, what is an alcoholic? And they gave me one of the classically misguided definitions of the alcoholic, and I give it to you for your guidance. I hope not, nobody is so misguided as to accept it. <laughs> they told me that an alcoholic is a person who cannot take one drink and stop. Well, after I got out of there and went back to business, I got to thinking about that. They told me I must never drink again, just to be sure. And I thought, well, I'm just a young fellow. Now I've got to live the whole rest of my life under this dreadful strain of not knowing, you know? I, <laughs> I never did try to take one drink and stop. So one day, only two weeks after I got out of that place, with the memory of the screaming in the night, believe me, insanity is not funny, and insanity is not pleasant, contrary to common notions. I remembered very vividly what it was to wake up in the night and hear the boys shrieking and to do a little of it myself. But still, the health was flowing strong now, and I began to think, well, I have been born into an age where the greatest gift that my time gives to me is the spirit of science. You know, experiment, that's the thing. And I began after a while to see it rather as my duty to the race to conduct this experiment to see what I was. So one afternoon I left my place of employment and I went into a little saloon on Madison Avenue and I had one drink. Now those of you who are perhaps visitors here and are not educated in the ways of alcoholics and who have read a little bit about this, maybe you think, oh, I know what's going to happen now. He'll have two drinks, ten drinks, twenty drinks. He'll get drunker than a goat, rush out onto Madison Avenue, be run over by a bus, They'll take him to Bellevue, and he will know what he is. Unfortunately, that is the that is the fortunate type of alcoholic. Unfortunately, <laughs> in a fair percentage of us, it works a little differently. There, we have a hiatus between cause and effect. There are some of us who can goof it around. <laughs> I am one of those. I didn't know it at the time. I was conducting in, in a scientific experiment without quite knowing what kind. I left that little saloon, and I won't say that nothing happened. I was glowing like a bride. I walked down the street very, very gingerly and got on a commuting train and went home and said nothing to nobody. I wouldn't have taken another drink for any amount of money. I was proving something. The next day I did the same thing. The next day I did the same thing. The next day I did the same thing. Same business every day for six weeks. And then I called my wife into conference and I said, look. The wise men up at the Hartford Retreat, and they must know, have said, quote, and I told them about the guy that can't take one drink and stop, and I said, in the last six weeks, I've had a drink every day. What do you think? And she said, oh, goody. She said, when you were drinking around here, it was pretty miserable, but since you've been sober, you have been really impossible to live with. Let's get out the jug. <laughs> They like to drink, too. Now, this is a long story, and I'm going to speed it up. I drank very carefully for a couple of weeks, and then not so carefully, and then quite carelessly indeed, and a year passed, and I was insane again. This time, my company said, we do not mind if you take five or six weeks off to get sane again, but we think that this time, just as an earnest of your goodwill, that you should pay. <laughs> so I went to a little cheaper place to be treated, and it was the same problem all over again, which comes first, the alcoholic or the nut, 
the nut hypothesis is pressing the alcoholic thing and wait, so I'm treated for being a nut. <laughs> the great thing for nuts at that time, it was for many years after, until just recently, with the tranquilizers, now it's not used so much. But then, they were all excited about shock treatment. And believe me, shock treatment for certain kinds of mental illness is it, the answer. They didn't know what it would do. They said, frankly, uh, we suggest this may help you. It's up to you. So I said, okay, I'll take it. Uh, now, I don't know whether any of you have had shock. Uh, since they give it with electricity, it's a relatively humane procedure. They put electrodes across your forehead here, and they let you have a whack of a certain voltage, and you go into a convulsion. And if you are so unfortunate as to begin to go into this thing in full consciousness, which is very unpleasant, they give you another whack with the electricity, and out you go, and the whole thing is accomplished in this blessed oblivion. When they gave it to me, however, they were pioneering with it. They had not yet discovered electricity. I was given metrazole shock treatment. Metrazole shock treatment was given was just short of a lethal dose of metrazole, given in the arm. They hadn't discovered the use of curare, which they use now to reduce the muscular reaction. And at first, they had a lot of people break bones and so forth in the thing, but now they had five guys that held you down. As soon as the injection was given, there was one guy on your head, one here, one here, one on your feet, and I guess one was the cheerleader. <laughs> the nasty feature about this was that if you did not lose consciousness, it was too bad. They couldn't give you any more metrazole. It would kill you. <laughs> well, I had 12 of these. Four a week. Three a week. For four weeks. And I was fully conscious in eight of them. And until this day, I don't know what that did for me in several departments. Physically, I just felt like I was all beat up afterwards. The physical sensation of metrazole shock is as if somebody doused your body with naphtha and lit your feet. <laughs> Uh, mentally, I don't know. Uh, I was too shuffled up anyhow. But I can see now, with the wisdom of hindsight, that this thing advanced the ball a little bit spiritually. Because when I came out, when I came out of my 12th shot, they had to carry me into it. I couldn't walk. I couldn't face it. When it was all over, I had acquired, for the first time in my adult life, a little humility. When the man came in and said, Power, we have done our best for you in the nut department. Shall we now discuss your alcohol problem? I said, Yes, sir, please, let's do it. <laughs> he was a nice little old man with steel-rimmed glasses, which he kept looking over the edge of, and he said, Why don't you go over to White Plains and identify yourself with a group of people over there who call themselves Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said, no thanks, that wouldn't be for me. Real direct stuff, you know, doctor to face. And he said, why would this be? And I said, it's because I'm too intelligent. Oh, he said. I said, I said yeah, this thing was described, I know all about it. They told me about this in the Hartford retreat. There's somebody for five minutes to pitch it up to me in the retreat. I said, this thing's got a God angle, you know, sort of trail, come to Jesus. And uh, I said, I take a very broad view of that sort of thing, but I've been educated in two universities, and we we educated people, doctor, we have to solve our problems, don't we, without recourse to these uh, primitive superstitions. And a nice little old man looked at me over his glasses, and he said, well, Paris, I can plainly see that you are a brain. But he said, we've had the brain in the tank here now, twice. <laughs> and it still does not look good to us. <laughs> so he said, just in the spirit of science, why don't you go over to White Plains, jump into the sawdust with these characters, and see what happens. Well, it's good for some yucks with hindsight, but in those days it was unrelieved tedium, horror, misery, and seriousness. And by this time, I wanted out. I wanted help. And this one thing worked greatly in my favor. 
and I went to my first AA meeting in October of 1941 with a great deal against me, but with this one thing in my favor. And I must say that my first meeting did something for me. I groped at this point for the words to say what it did. Let me say this, that the power of this thing, which power, what is here reached out and touched me. It got past my defenses. I was not moved. It's good to be moved, but I was not affected emotionally at all. I think I in those days was quite dead emotionally. I was touched in what would be the not intellect, the knowing part. When I left that meeting, I knew something, and I couldn't get away from it. I knew, after listening to four people talk, that they were telling the truth. I couldn't escape it. I knew that they were ill in the same way I was ill. And I knew, by God, they were getting well. I tried to argue against it. I just, this monkey business that was so characteristic of my mind was going a mile a minute. But something down underneath that very calmly had been reached, and it knew something. And I came back for more. And I came back for more. And the weeks went on. I began to go to meetings. And as the weeks turned into months, lo and behold, I am sober. Now understand, I have been a daily, absolutely compulsive, obsessive drinking, and nothing will break it, break it up but hospitalization. Believe me. I've had all kinds of the best help available, and nothing breaks it up. I have made the most furious resolve with the greatest of incentive, and nothing breaks it up. And now here comes this thing, and by golly, I'm not thinking, and it isn't much of a struggle. In fact, it isn't any struggle. The only struggle is to get to the meeting. And pretty soon, they're so enjoyable that that isn't any struggle. Well, it went on for six months, seven months, eight months, and instead of just sobriety, I began to feel well in ways that exceeded mere health. You know it comes to different of us in different ways, but I began to have little flickers of a kind of consciousness that wasn't new to me. I could remember feeling this way as a very small child. It was mostly the way leaves smelled, and uh, I'd be walking down the street, and I thought, my God, people are kind of wonderful. In anybody's language, I was beginning to wake up spiritually. This is a tremendous thing. All of us who have had the grace to make this program have experienced it. How then, in the name of God, did I ever drink again? Because I did. When I came in, I had this resentment against the God business. I not only did not have faith, I had unfaith, and I was militant about it. And the first meeting I went to, there was a guy, three of the people made a normal speech, and the other guy was higher than Gilroy's kite on God. Boy, he had faith, and I was halfway out the door when some of the brothers got me, and they said, let's take it easy, you know? So I took it easy. But I took it so easily that I didn't take it at all. Much later, when I went back to Chicago, the place where I finally made the program, they had a saying out there that I liked. They said, take it easy, but take it. I didn't take it. I was sober on the first step and on the last one-third of the twelfth step. I did a lot of running around trying to help other people, and I admitted I was an alcoholic, and the whole rest of it is full of this God business, and you can have it, and I wouldn't buy it. And I had an opportunity to buy it, and I had to fight and develop and culture and nurture later when I went back to Chicago, the place where I finally made the program. They had a saying out there that I liked. They said, take it easy, but take it. I didn't take it. I was sober on the first step and on the last one-third of the twelfth step. I did a lot of running around trying to help other people, and I admitted I was an alcoholic, and the whole rest of it is full of this God business, and you can have it, and I wouldn't buy it. And I had an opportunity to buy it, and I had to fight and develop and culture and nurture my arrogance not to buy it, because the evidence here, if you'll sit through months of AA, is overwhelming. And so by choice I didn't buy it. 
tasting of this thing, living by it, knowing it, built into it, enjoying it, I still won't take the core of the progress. Inevitably, the day comes when my free ride is over. I think everybody that comes in here gets a free ride. It's only my opinion. The time comes to see how much of this have I got, and I really haven't got any of it. I begin to do some very monkey thinking. I begin to think I will have a slip. I've seen some people have slips. A few of them, of course, jumped off chimneys and fell over cliffs. I thought those were inferior types eliminating themselves. <laughs> but a superior guy who got this program as quick as I did I could certainly do with a slip and perhaps no harm done. By this time, it's coming to me that maybe there is a higher power, but I'm beginning to see this thing as cosmic rays, you know? A blind and a dumb thing, which quite possibly I might learn to control someday. Never the god of my childhood, who is the living and the conscious power, oh no. So I, at this time, had, please, not a slip. There are slips in AA. I consciously and deliberately walked off this thing, having had it. In the Bible, which many years later, on the advice of my sponsor, I learned to read, there is a very ugly thing said about this act of one who has tasted of the charisma, the free gift of God's life, and who turns his back on it. I think it's St. Peter who says of such a one that the dog has returned to his own vomit and the sow to her wallowing in the mire. It is a very hard part of the AA story. It is my story, and I'm stuck with it, and I will wind it up fast now. But I want to tell you this. We see less and less of this sort of thing in AA. AA is growing stronger as it goes on. We have more high-bottom people, more young people, more women. In all ways, the strength of this is growing, and we have less people who have really got this thing who are fool enough to walk off it. I am one such fool who have lived by God's extraordinary mercy to bear witness to the foolishness of this act. I think out of mercy not so much to myself as to anyone else who may be tempted to this same sort of foolishness. I had my slip as I thought, and it didn't go very well, and it didn't take a year. In six weeks, I was never than a fruitcake again. And the boys were after me with the minnow thing. <laughs> and I got back into AA just in time. Only not into AA, just into the place where they were having the meeting, because the next day I was drinking again, and I hadn't intended it, and I didn't want to do it. So I began to come back to a lot of meetings, and I continued to drink. And then I began to go to a meeting every night in the week. And I continued to drink. And I began to try to do a lot of 12-step work, and I found I couldn't do any. Because you can't give away what you haven't got. That was a nasty shot. It's a very long story. As the weeks went into months, I suddenly began to realize that this thing was unraveling itself in reverse and that I was going very rapidly right back to where I was before, and that it was going to be worse, and nothing on God's earth I could do could stop it. I begin to have nervous little conversations with people in AA and say, what do you think is the matter? <laughs> and they begin to say, well, you were a pretty fancy Dan here. You did a lot of smart talking. What do you think is the <laughs> And I didn't know. I got back into LA four years later, seven more nuthouse. Two of those years, I was so shocked mentally and emotionally and physically that I was totally unemployable. God alone knows how my wife and my children and I lived in that time. I don't know where the dough came from. I don't know how the whole thing was held together. There was no more money for sanitariums. I kept being shoved in the county nuthouse. I turned into a short-term periodic out of fear, but even if I'd be sober two or three weeks, if I got on a commuting train to try to go into New York, I would go right into the screaming horrors on the train with the sweat 
screaming off my chin and get off in Grand Central and get on the phone and say, for God's sake, meet me at the station. I can't take it and come home into the little shrunken, shriveled thing that my life had become. I didn't dare. Finally, I didn't dare walk around the block. And one day, after my wife had taken the kids and left and the furnace needed attention, I sat there for an hour wondering how I was going to get the strength to go downstairs and fix the furnace. And I was sober a good part of that time. I drank in fits and spades and stuff. And of course, at this time, I was heavily involved with pills. I got Nemgitol, Amatol, Phenobarbital, Epsilon, Rumanus, I took it. Anything I could get my hands on that would change my consciousness, I took because I don't need any theology and I don't have to wait to die, many of us don't, to know what hell is. This is hell. There may be degrees of it, but this is authentically it. And anything that promised to change it, I welcome. And I begin to seriously welcome the thought of death, although I was afraid of it. And with some of the strange intuition that can comes to a person at a time like this, I knew that death, under this circumstance, would never be my friend. It isn't a bad thing to die, I know now. It's a bad thing to die that way. That much insight, I think, saved my life. I think if a person gets desperate enough in this, suicide is a very logical thing, given certain very wrong premises. Anyhow, by this time, I am, I did one thing in all of this that was not wrong. I stuck with AA. I hated to. I came to meetings and I sat in the back of the room and I cussed the speaker and I used to think, I'm a better man drunk than you are sober, you mealy mouth so and so, but I, <laughs> I had to come back because a few things that the, that the, powerful grace that God has given to the depths of my heart never left me. I knew what I was, I knew where it led, and I knew there was an answer, and I knew the answer was here, and I came crawling back for it like a whip up, because when the dice were down, I wanted to live. I think the deepest thing in a human being, and maybe our psychologists have yet to learn this, deeper than sex, deeper than the lust for life itself, is the desire to be a decent person and stand in the light of God. I think that's at the core of everyone. And while all of this was raging, that was at the core of me, although I often didn't know it or feel it. And it was one of the two things that kept me alive. The other thing was the love, and I hate the abuse of that word, I use it very carefully. The love that came to me through members of Alcoholics Anonymous. And this is the kind of love that's described in the Bible. The Greeks had a name for it. It's not ordinary love. It's called agape, the capacity to love the unlovable. And AA is full of it. And it's a divine gift, although I didn't know it at the time. This was extended to me by certain members of AA who knew that I was too wacky to understand what this program is all about, and they just gave me their friendship. And there was enough to keep this life nursed along while this thing went up. I had long since given up any notions that there was no God. I knew by this time that what these people in AA was, were talking about was true. But it didn't come to me. I just knew the words for it in my crazy state. It takes the sanity that you earn here to get this program, and I had thrown it away. I made some experiments in prayer. They were funny little things, kind of like Sputnik. I had beef once in a while. <laughs> I thought, if I ever get this again, some tremendous thing will happen. It must be that I'll have a spiritual experience, or a flock of doves will fly by, or a light will go on, or something. Because by this time I knew the 12 steps and I was trying to practice them. I got well finally as a result of something, of seeing something I never expected to see. I was taken to the hospital one day in an advanced state of DTs, which I had had many times before, but I had them worse this time than before. My wife and children were out in Chicago. Two friends took me into the hospital. I was loaded with chlorohydrate for four or five days, and when the chloral began to work out, 
Those of you who have had a full course of DTs perhaps may have experienced this. There are periods of lucidity as one comes out of DTs. I began to experience periods of clarity. And in these periods, I got a look at this thing, which I never thought I would see because I thought I had been seeing it all my life. I got a look at myself with the false faces off. You know, the successful businessman, gone. The big brain, the smart guy, gone. Layer after layer of this thing. This disease is oddly merciful. As it kills the being, it tends to kill the ego. There is a critical opportunity when this false thing has been ruptured by this disease. There is an opportunity for a person to see himself or herself. Thank God most of us don't have to do it in such a clumsy and an unskillful way as this. But at the last moment, I saw this. I saw what I was. And one of the last masks to go was this arrogant mask that I am greater than the master of this universe. I saw at last what I am in company with all of the other little beings who people this little planet, a very small, pulsating life, utterly dependent upon a power greater than myself. Not just for my sanity, but for the power to draw my next breath. My heart was banging away there, and it occurred to me that all of these years that had been beating not by my power, but by a power derived from a power greater than myself. I came out of that hospital and I wasn't sure I was going to make it again, but I thought I might. It felt differently. I sat in the back of the meeting. I wasn't mad anymore. I didn't criticize the speakers so much. And as the weeks went by and the months went by, I had a three-month jinx. I couldn't beat three months. And now I beat it. I got past three months. And I began to see in AA. To see, I began to see what this parade of witness up here means. And I began to hear what these people are saying. Some of them got up here and spoke very well as speaking goes, and some of them spoke very haltingly, doing very often the better job. I began to get it again. I recovered my sight and my hearing. I dared not tell myself as time went on, I've got this again. I didn't dare say that every time the thought came to me. I just said, one day at a time, one day at a time, I clung to the 12 steps of this thing. I didn't dare to think of anything else. I so desperately wanted it. But one time when I had been sober now more than a year, I sat in a meeting one night, and I wasn't looking for it. It came to me with great strength. The truth, the fact, my God, I've got this thing again, or it's got me. I've got what a person has who comes in here and gets this. I have this utterly miraculous protection against this deadly, murderous disease. My life is once again restored to me. And then with my tendency to ask why, I just had one question. And that was, in all of those four years, why was it I couldn't get back? When I so terribly wanted to get back, I asked why, and nobody seemed to know why. And then much later, I came upon something that was an explanation for me, and I don't know whether it would be for anybody else, but I'm going to leave it with you. As I have said on the advice of my sponsor, I gradually began to do a little reading. And I began to read the Bible, and I was reading about this little spiritual group that they started up there in a little hick province north of Judea. And some of the people, as in any group I suppose, were getting it, and some of them weren't getting it. And some of them who were getting it went to the head man, the sponsor man, and they said, What's the matter here? Why aren't these guys getting it? And he said an odd thing to him. He said, They have eyes, but they can't see. And they have ears, but they can't hear. And then he said 
to them who would ask him the question, but blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. And sitting there in that meeting, the night when I realized that I had this thing, I thought to myself, thank God for that saying. That's not an old saying. That's not a 2,000-year-old saying. That's an eternal saying. And that saying is fulfilled in my life and in the life of every one of us who finds his or her place in this wonderful program.